Amen. Thanks, Aaron and team. Appreciate you guys leading us in worship today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, but we are certainly missing all of you who are at home today watching. I know this isn't the July. I feel like the, the carrot just keeps getting dangled in front of us every week. We think we're going to be able to reopen and we're trying to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And we just feel like right now, according to the best practices of our medical professionals, that the wise and loving thing to do is just to continue to worship at home together, united by the Holy Spirit. So we pray that this morning you're able to experience communion and connection with one another through the power of the same Holy Spirit that unites all believers in faith and love and in service. So welcome this morning. Uh, today we're going to look at one of the most powerful transformations. Thank you to John Hayes and Jared Hagler for showing us a, a humorous interpretation of the conversion the rebirth of a guy named Saul of Tarsus, who would soon become one of the greatest missionaries of all time. We're going to see how his zeal for, for God remains, but how it's completely transformed and redirected because of his newfound love for Jesus Christ. Now, many of you know that my family, like uh, a lot of families, uh, got a quarantine puppy. Yes, we, a COVID dog. Uh, her name is Annie, and she's awesome. She's adorable, but she's also a two-month-old puppy. And uh, Isaiah, our four-year-old, uh, likes to run through the kitchen. And, and Annie, as any puppy would, likes to nip. And his uh, pajamas uh, usually tend to, to, she has a way of making them come off, which we think is hilarious. And it's pretty funny at first, but it, it soon terrifies him. And so he just runs faster, which makes Annie chase him harder and nip harder and We've tried to tell him, Isaiah, look, if you run, she will chase you because that's what dogs do. They chase things. I'm going to tell you about uh, the chase of one uh, dog that's referred to as the Hound of Heaven and how the Hound of Heaven caught up with Saul today on the road to Damascus. Some of you may be familiar with the long poem called The Hound of Heaven. It was first published by a British poet in 1893 named Francis Thompson. It's a testimony of Francis's own life experience of running away from God and then God having pursued him anyway. Here's the, the first 15 lines, okay? I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter, up vistaed slope, slopes, I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. So it starts out with this almost terrifying idea of this big dog in pursuit of, of someone's life. But as you read on, you see that really it's about the overwhelming love of God that never gives up and always pursues those who God calls. And it's also about our own foolish and feeble attempts to avoid God as he pursues us as his beloved children. 
It reminds me of what St. Augustine said in his confessions, Lord, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. There's a Hebrew word for love that's often used in the Old Testament, in the Psalms particularly. It's the word that you see in Psalm 57, verse 10. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. The word for steadfast love there is the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed has this implication of dogged, determined love. I know Andy got a, a new pit bull at home. You know, when a pit bull holds on to something, it just never lets go. That's the idea of hesed love. It, it pursues, it never gives up, it never lets go, and it never fails. Today we're going to see the hesed love of God on full display in the life of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. We're going to see how the hound of heaven was pursuing Saul until finally he surrendered to the overwhelming flood of God's grace and love and goodness in his own life and how he was reborn into a new creation. Remember in Acts chapter 3, the, the irony is that Saul was this great hunter. We, we, the, the cool thing about this chapter is how Saul moves from being the hunter to the hunted and how he's pursued by God. In Acts chapter 3, it says Saul was ravaging. Remember that word means like an animal of a prey with its prey and how it, it treats something that it's eating. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We know that he was a, a staunch terrorizer of the church. Look at Acts chapter 9 today in our text in, in verse chapter, uh, chapter 9 verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was hunting followers of the way. Remember in the upper room, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the early church movement going on in Jerusalem and now spreading into Samaria and other parts of the world was just known as the way. And Saul's mission in life was to eradicate the way by any means necessary. He'd become a religious extremist, violently persecuting and, and rounding up anyone who claimed that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior. He believed that he was doing these things out of complete dedication to God by, by preserving Judaism, by keeping Judaism free from any kind of twisted outside influences. And we know that lots of Christians fled under this persecution and as part of God's plan to spread the gospel around the world. And surely a lot of them went up to this city called Damascus, about 140 miles north of Jerusalem. And the high priest in Jerusalem had the power to grant extradition papers. They, they had the, the right to, to tell somebody, yes, you can go and round up people from other cities and bring them back here to Jerusalem. So Saul goes to the high council, the high priest, and says, give me papers to go to Damascus and bring back anybody that I find who's a follower of the way. In his mind, he's this 
mighty hunter. He's the one who's doing the chasing, but in reality, the hound of heaven is gaining on him every minute, getting closer. Saul was completely oblivious to the fact that the loving God of all creation was doing something amazing, something new in the world, something drastic in bringing the world back into himself. And he had a special role for Saul to play in that plan. Saul's life would change forever. Once he got close to Damascus, he was approaching the city. And look at verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The only reason he says, Lord, who are you, Lord, here is because it's a term of respect. It's like saying, sir, who are you, sir? Saul had thought that he'd been persecuting followers of the way, but we see here that he was really persecuting the way himself. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Saul was actually terrorizing Jesus Christ himself. And we know from later verses that Saul can, can still see Jesus, even though there's this blinding light, but he, he doesn't recognize him. And he calls out, who, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am the one whom you are persecuting. Whoa, that's Jesus. In an instant, Saul's whole world comes crumbling down around him. Everything that he'd built his life upon has, has now been shattered. Saul had been telling everyone and using violence to prove his point that, that Jesus was a fake, that he was a phony, that he was an imposter who died a cursed death on a tree and therefore could not be the real Messiah and anyone who claimed he was should go straight to jail. And his disciples must have faked his resurrection. He didn't really rise from the dead. He was a nobody. And now here he's confronted by the real life, fully alive and risen Jesus Christ of Nazareth, face to face with him. But Jesus doesn't condemn him. He doesn't say, hey, Saul, knock it off with all the terrorizing Quit it. He simply tells them to get up and go. Look at verse six. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It's a big contrast from what we've seen earlier. You know, Saul needs some time to process what had just happened to him because his whole world's become turned upside down. He enters into this time of fasting and I think probably thinking a lot and, and maybe praying, maybe talking to this God for the first time that he's beginning to understand is something different from what he thought he was. <coughs> he's wrestling with this new reality about what is real in the spiritual world and the physical world because now he had been apprehended by the hound of heaven. He's no longer a mighty hunter. He's blind, he's weak, he's powerless, just laying on the floor of Ananias' house wondering what's going on. It's, it's kind of a complete breakdown in his life, but sometimes breakdowns 
can be exactly what we need. Sometimes ending up in a ditch is right where God wants us in order that we can find life and live and flourish. It was the midnight of his soul. There's a phrase called the midnight of the soul that some of us have gone through. You know what I'm talking about if you've been through that. And he was physically blind, which paralleled his spiritual blindness. He had no idea who God really was. And he'd been living in this blindness for his whole life. And now he'd seen the risen Christ with his own eyes. He realized he'd been living a lie. He'd built his whole life. He had bet his whole life on this idea that this rigid, ultra-Orthodox kind of Judaism was the best way to live. And now that foundation that he thought was firm had been completely washed away. It's not a fun process. Anybody who's been through a breakdown like this knows it's not easy and it's not painless, but it can be really good. Yes, it's, it's fundamentally exhausting, but when you have nothing else, maybe that's when you find what you really need. The difficult journey through the midnight of the soul is one that can lead, not always, but it can and should lead to flourishing and to abundant life, both in this life and in the next life. It reminds me of those Matrix movies, right? Those of you that have seen those, where people's minds are trapped in a, a computer program while their bodies are actually asleep in cages. And if they wake up from the Matrix, then they live in this stark gray uh, post-apocalyptic world where machines are waging war against them. But in the Matrix, everything's a lie, but there are pretty things and there's some good food. It's all a lie, but it's maybe preferable to the reality of the stark existence. The fundamental choice for people is whether they, they're going to continue to live the lie, dead to the real world and under the control of machines, or will they wake up? Will they play their part in reality and find real meaning and purpose for their lives? It won't be easy, but it'll be real. The real world can be a tough place, but reality is where we want to live. It's where God wants us to be. It's, it's always infinitely better than chasing after the lie, chasing after counterfeit gods that can give us no real hope or love or peace. I love how singer-songwriter Sarah Groves uh, puts it, her song, um, This Cup, says, right here, right here, this challenging reality is better than fear or fantasy. It's true. But the Lord doesn't leave Saul alone to wrestle with all this. He, he doesn't leave him alone. He sends someone to him. Look at verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord, kind of like Samuel with Eli. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. What's interesting about that Straight Street, even to this day, is still the main thoroughfare in Damascus in Syria. It's pretty interesting. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Go back to verse 11 there. Look at, look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Okay, yeah, I know where that is, God. I can do that, no problem. And at the house of Judas, I, I think I know where that is. 
Look for a man from Tarsus. Okay, yeah, I know Tarsus is over there, you know, in Asia Minor. I, I can look for a guy from Tarsus named Saul. What? Saul of Tarsus? The Saul? The guy who's been breathing out murderous threats against people like me who have converted to this new way, this followers of Jesus Christ. You want me to go to Saul? That sounds crazy. But look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, okay, Lord, I've heard of this. I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. Understandable. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's heard about the extradition papers that he got from the high priest. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God's answer is enough for Ananias. He says, go, because I've chosen this guy. What a beautiful thing that God chooses the, the very people that you would never dream could be used by God, that God chooses them. Why does God choose people like me who have nothing special to offer? Why does God people choose people like Saul? Why does God choose people that we would never imagine would be key players? It's because the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. It shames the world. God's ways are not our ways. They're infinitely higher than our ways, and they subvert all the power and authority that we think this world has to offer. I love that fact that God chooses us. In my life, I know in yours too, you may feel left out. You may feel like you've been passed over time and time again, but think about this. The most important, the most glorious, the most perfect being in all of the universe, the God of all creation, has chosen you to be his own possession, to be his precious child, to be adopted into his perfect family and to play a special role in his plan to redeem all things back unto himself. Paul would marvel at this fact of his own election, that he'd been chosen for the rest of his life. It would confound him and lead him to worship. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse Four, God chose us in him, in Christ. He, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, set apart, and blameless, made pure by Christ's righteousness before him in his presence. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What an amazing thing. That should blow our minds and lead us to worship every day when we consider that we have been chosen by God. You know, we've spoiled little Annie uh, mightily in the two weeks that we've had her. We've bought her way too many toys. And even people from our church have spoiled her too. You know who you are who uh, left gifts on my desk. And one lady from our church left a stuffed hedgehog on my desk for Annie and I took it home to Annie, and Annie loves this thing. She, she will go and, and bite this hedgehog, and she'll throw it in the air, and she'll parade around the house with the hedgehog held high in her mouth for everyone to see because she loves it so much. Think about this, the hound of heaven, when he pursues us as his prey. He's so proud of us. He wants to show us off to the world he wants to, to show everyone what he's caught because 
He loves us and cherishes us with that kind of delight and prize. And not only would Saul become God's great treasure and, and God's missionary to the Gentiles, he would also be imprisoned. He would also be beaten on several occasions. He would be shipwrecked and suffer greatly. Look at verse 16. God tells Ananias, I'm going to show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, it's true in the Bible that honor in, in God's kingdom and usefulness in God's kingdom go hand in hand with suffering. We can't be useful to God and pretend like it's going to be easy. Many years later, Saul would write these words in Philippians 1 verse 29. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been gifted to you, granted to you, that yeah, you can believe in Jesus and you get to suffer for him as well. What a gift that you can partake in the sufferings and in the death of Jesus Christ in this world. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, happy are you when you suffer for my name's sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's a beautiful thing to suffer when you experience persecution in order to bring God glory and to advance his kingdom. What a gift and what an opportunity it would be for Saul, who would later say, I count all those things as lost for the sake of gaining Christ and for knowing him and the power of his resurrection. So Ananias is probably a little spooked about going to see Saul, uh, but he obeys. He chooses the right thing. Look at verse 17. Ananias departed. And with great trembling, I'm sure, entered the house and laying his hands on this wretched, blind man named Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow, Brother Saul, he says. Ananias addresses this guy as Brother Saul. The forgiveness that is communicated in that one simple address is profound. I bet Ananias knew some maybe young women who had been widowed by Saul. He probably had friends who were orphans because Saul had dragged their parents off to prison or, or killed them. Maybe he even had friends who they himself, themselves had been killed by Saul. But in this moment, after being told by Jesus, he lays his hands on Saul the hunter, who's now become Saul the hunted. And he says, brother Saul, all those sins of the past fade into the past and into the background. And now Saul and Ananias are closer than blood. They are united in the same family of faith through one Lord, Jesus Christ. And something amazing happens. Look at verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. What a beautiful picture of new life and transformation. All of Saul's preconceived notions of God, who he used to think God was, had fallen away and he could see God and his kingdom clearly now. Saul thought that, you know, God's story began with Abraham and the Jews, and it continued with the Jewish nation. But now the scales had fallen from his eyes, 
And he sees that God is a global God on a global mission. He sees that God's story began with Adam and it ends with the new creation of the whole world. You know, I can remember meeting an African church planner when I was a young seminarian. I was probably 23 or 24. I was working as a youth pastor at a church in Birmingham. And this guest speaker came to our church. He was an older African man who had planted a lot of churches on the continent of Africa. And we were talking about missions and I was taking a missions class and I was trying to impress him with some fancy thing I read by Leslie Newbegin or some missionologist, you know, and I said, you know, we really need a, a new lens with which we see the world. And, and he said, no, no, my brother, we don't need a new lens. We need new eyes. I'll never forget that. The whole organ must be transformed by which we see the world, not just the lens that we see it through. Saul was not only seeing the world in a different way through a different lens, but he was seeing the world and God through new eyes, regenerated, reborn, recreated eyeballs. We, we have to have that regenerated vision of reality that only comes from the act of baptism that represents dying to ourselves and being raised into a new creation, a new life with Christ. Saul realizes that he's on the real hunt now. He's joining in the hunt that the hound of heaven is leading us on even to this very day. Saul's going to be used by God in mighty ways. And the first step in his preparation is to see with new eyes. I'm going to give you four keys for being prepared to be used by God. If you're the note-taking type, write these down. The first step in preparing to be used by God is to see reality with new eyes. That can only come from being born again and raised into a whole new life. First, you have to see the truth about the spiritual world and the physical world through the born-again eyes of faith. But there's more preparation that Saul would go through. Look at verse 19. In taking food, he was strengthened. He's ready for the new hunt. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. He doesn't know a lot of Christian theology, but he knows that Jesus is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he's, has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. It's a beautiful transformation. Saul's zeal for hunting has now led him to, uh, from an effort to seeking to eradicate the way by hunting down Christians, to now joining the hound of heaven on the hunt to create more Christians. He's trying to see the name of Jesus elevated instead of destroyed. You know, sometimes we'd like to tell Saul's conversion story and just kind of leave it there that God, you know, did this great thing with him. And, but there's more to it than that. There's something else that happens between verses 22 and 23 that we actually read about in Galatians chapter one, verse 15 to 18. He says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. 
Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Before Paul jumps in with the apostles and say, hey, I'm one of you now, he realizes that he needs time alone with God. And he goes off to the Arabian desert, to the wilderness, to be transformed by alone time with God so we can have that rich, uninterrupted time with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the second key to be prepared to be used by God, is you have to spend time intentionally alone with God. If you're not doing that now, how can we expect to be transformed? Henry Nouwen, the, the, the great theologian and Catholic priest, said that solitude is the furnace of transformation. If you can't find time to get alone with God, then how can you ever expect to be transformed into the image of Jesus? Make time every day to be alone with God in his word and in prayer. So Saul returns to Damascus and he expects to start this great revival probably. He's on fire for the Lord. He's ready to do some great things for the kingdom of God. But persecution just hits him hard. As the great philosopher Mike Tyson once said, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's what happens to Saul here. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Sounds like a cool, dramatic escape, but, but Saul would later say this was a weakness. This was a failure in his ministry. It was a, a tough time for him. But God allowed that failure in Saul's early ministry in order to teach him things that he would later say, like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We are just earthen vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have the gospel in us. Who are we? We're just dirt, earthen vessels in order to show this power comes from God. That's the third key in being prepared to be used by God. You have to learn from our weaknesses and from our failures. God allows those things to happen in order to shape us and teach us, but they won't if we don't allow them to have God's work impact on us. Just ask anybody from our Celebrate Recovery community. I love to hear their testimonies as they talk about their journey of recovery, how God allowed them to fail in order to teach them how to depend on his grace alone. It's a beautiful thing. So then the fourth and final key here that we're gonna talk about is that you must allow believers to care for you. Some of you don't like receiving help, but Saul received great help from other believers as he was in community with other followers of the way. Look at verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. Saul, yikes. For they didn't believe that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord, Jesus, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus, He'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Oh, Barnabas, what a great, great man. I told you, he's a rock star in the book of Acts. We know that in Galatians, Paul would tell us that this would be the beginning of a lifelong friendship and brotherhood as Barnabas cared for him. 
We also know in Galatians that Barnabas introduced him to James, the brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. We know that Paul or Saul at this point would stay with Peter for two weeks in his house. Can you imagine being with Peter, who was in the inner circle of Jesus himself? What, what an incredible internship he had under Peter, learning and growing in his faith. This is why church family is so important. You can't do this Christian life on your own. It's especially a challenging uh, idea in a pandemic when we can't hang out with each other like we used to. But it's so important to have brothers and sisters and mentors and mentees who can minister to us and care for us and that we can care for them as well. You know, I spent a lot of time riding the bench on basketball teams, and it's not fun to sit there on the bench while your buddies are in the game having fun. I would challenge you today, if you're on the sidelines of this Christian life, get in the game. God is preparing you to be used by him for his purposes. You see these four points again, Miles, put those, there we go. You see reality with new eyes. That's the first step. I pray that we can be prepared by God to, to be used in amazing ways, ways that we can't even imagine right now by seeing reality with regenerated eyes. And let's focus on spending time alone with God every day. We need that time. And let's learn from our failures. Instead of getting angry or bitter about them, let's learn from them and allow God to teach us lessons that we never could have learned otherwise. And finally, let's allow other believers to care for us. If you have a hard time receiving help, so many people in our church who've lost jobs or something, they say, I'm fine. Don't send me any food. We're gonna be fine. Allow people to care for you and, and to minister to you in these ways. I can't wait to see how God's gonna use each of us to play our part in his plan to bring heaven to earth and to bring hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you prepare us to be used by you, to be your hands and feet in a world that desperately needs them. God, I pray that you would help us to be seeing the world as it really is and seeing you as you really are by seeing with the eyes of faith that are new eyes. God, I pray that you would help us to focus on spending time with you every day so that we can be transformed in the furnace of solitude. And God, I pray that we would uh, easily allow others to care for us and receive that care in a way that is transformative and that we sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. God, we love you and we just wanna be used by you for good purposes to bring heaven to earth. We pray all this in the high and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for tuning in today. We invite you to make a response and call the number 615-297-5303 so that you can help us know how we can help you and minister to you and allow us to care for you in this strange time. If you wanna follow Christ as Lord for the first time and you feel like the hound of heaven has been following you, Call the number right now, 615-297-5303, or go to woodmontbaptist.com and fill out the digital connection card so we can get to know you and minister to you. Thanks for watching today. Let's sing this final song of response as we respond in our hearts to the Lord.